Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Elmore. My guest today is Maria Wright. Maria is a nationally distinguished social worker, consultant, international trainer, and facilitator with experience in organizational leadership, child welfare services, and curriculum development. She's the president and CEO of Wright Community Services, LLC, a company that strives to empower system-involved families through awareness, services, and education, while also providing consultation, training, and system-specific facilitation to agencies that serve those communities. Today, we're going to be talking about evaluating bias and how motivational interviewing could be a solution to changing systems of equity. So welcome, Maria. We're happy to have you here with us. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here, and thank you for having me. Yeah. So I think it'd be important as we jump into our conversation today to kind of define terms that we'll be discussing, bias, systemic racism, equity. Do you mind giving us a sense of your definition of those terms before we get started? Yeah, when I think of systematic racism, it's really built on, you know, years and years of history of why these systems were created, who they were created or intended to support or protect, and where the power control has lied. You know, primarily I work with the child welfare system, and the system was intended to police families that were already in poverty, that were already under-resourced and underserved. When I think of bias, it's really looking at how are people falling into buckets of beliefs or ideas or behaviors, right? When you think of bias, people often just think of like, if someone's biased against, you know, a race, but biases, really the continuum is larger than that. And so we'll talk about different types of biases and how it contributes to people's behaviors and response to others. Because when we become more aware of our biases and understand that everyone has a bias, we'll be able to be more mindful in our responses. And then I look at equity. Equity is really making things equitable for those that it's intended to, rather than trying to maintain control around moving boxes of support, but instead removing barriers so people can get the adequate support and not be reliant on a system of boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like I often hear confusion between the terms equity and equal, if that makes sense. Can you maybe explain that a bit? Like how is equity a little bit different than being equal? Yeah. So if you think there's this image that's, you know, all over the internet of three people and they're all different heights. And at one point there's an image where everyone equally has a box, but there is still a height difference between those three people. So they equally have the same type of service, but there's a disadvantage because of their height. They still can't see over the barrier, which is a fence. And Mm so equality would be removing that barrier So they no longer have to be reliant on the box, on the service, but they have a level of equality to be able to all see the baseball game at the same time in the same manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good definition. I think it's good to clarify those. And we can obviously clarify those further as we continue speaking, but thanks for giving us that context. So tell us what brought you into this field of social work in general, and also what's driving your work to address these systems of inequity. Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty cliche. When I was in sixth grade, I wanted to be a social worker. I wanted to work in child welfare for as long as I can remember. I really wanted to advocate for children, be a voice for children. You can imagine I didn't feel like I had that support when I was a child. 
So I really wanted to do that when I was an adult. That's what I wanted to go to school for. And now that I am a social worker and I'm in the field, I no longer want to be the voice for others and be the voice for children. I am more focused on finding ways to empower the clients that I work with for them to find their own voice and to empower them to use their voice. And so that's kind of what brought me into social work and what's keeping me here. Yeah. Yeah. So some of it comes out of your own experience and, you know, you want to serve and help, but then also you have that training and that background that's helping you think of it differently now, which is great. Yeah. So one of the things that you wanted to talk about was self-examination and how that is so critical to understanding our own biases. And earlier you had mentioned that a lot of times people think of race when they think of bias, like racial bias, but there's also so many different other types of biases. So do you want to speak to that a bit? Absolutely. So when you think of biases, it's our social landscape and our environment really contributes to the biases that we hold. And I started doing heavy self-evaluation work in about 2018, 2019, where I began to look at my upbringing and my, you know, academic experiences and just the things that I've experienced over life and how it contributed to my thought process, my decision-making process, how I interact with other people. And for me, most importantly, how that spews over into my professional setting, working with system-involved youth and families. And I realized that, you know, as a Black woman who was raised by a white family, who grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and community, there were a lot of things that I learned that I realized contributed to how I perceived the world. And so self-examination was really important for me. Also realizing that I do identify as a Black woman and how does that show up for me in the world when I go meet with clients, when I interface with the courses, when I interface with the case management tasks that I am designed to do. And so self-examination work was really important for me because if I cannot understand who I am, what my own culture is and what my upbringing and how it contributed to me as an adult, then it's going to be really hard for me to understand my clients and understand their culture and have compassion for them and be at a point where I can have conversations with them where I'm empathetic. And I, you know, even if I don't understand, I can take a moment to hold a level of respect for them. And so self-examination is really important for me. I think that, you know, oftentimes as professionals, we suppress our own being and we don't take the time to understand that, but then don't realize that our own being ultimately contributes to how we show up in the world. And again, for me, most importantly, how we show up as professionals in the field. Yeah. It's like the um, old school, if you will, psychology was very much built on psychoanalysis where the therapist was designed to literally sit behind the couch and not even, you wouldn't even look at the therapist and they would say very minimal things. And that actually is still, there's a lot of research behind that. It's still an intensive way you could be trained to do therapy or seek out therapy. But most therapists that you run across in all of our different fields nowadays, we exactly what you're saying. We were trained to recognize like I'm a person with a background and with biases and perspectives and opinions. And how can we, instead of pretending that doesn't exist, take ownership of it, be compassionate about it, work with it and really meet people where they are and help them become aware of their own perspectives and, you know, hold a space where even if we're different or if we disagree, et cetera, we can still help each other and help the client progress. Yeah. It makes sense. That's my favorite thing is perspectives. And I like truly enjoy holding different types of perspectives and viewing different scenarios or situations from different perspectives and naming that. Like I know that there are times where I'm able to view a situation from a different perspective and I'll name that. I'll be like, a lot of people don't see this as, you know, 
this or they don't hold this perspective. And I'll just, you know, create conversation around that because that is it. You know, when we are raised one way, we are given a perspective as a child. As we are adults, we can form other perspectives, but it does take work to do that. It's like a learned behavior. It's a learned way of showing up in the world. It's not something that you just grow with if it's never been exposed to you. Yeah. Or I would say experiences too, right? Like the more experiences you have that just by nature opens up your perspective a bit different. Yeah. So, and, and I know we're talking mostly about race in this conversation, but I think it is worth noting. It could be gender bias. It could be social economic bias, you know, just anything in our background or anything that makes us who we are means you come from a certain perspective and with that comes bias. So yeah. 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 I think it's helpful to be aware of that. (laughs) Yeah. Race, of course, you know, that's what people fall to, but ideology, where we grow up, even the state or the community or the county that you grew up in, your environment contributes to your perspective, your experiences, and that landscape contributes to the type of biases that you hold and why you hold those biases. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know, again, we're talking mostly about race today. So I know we have a big buzzword coming up of white supremacy. So let's define that as well and tell us where you're coming from with focusing on white supremacy in this conversation. Yeah. And I, you know, I recognize that white supremacy is just a natural part of my conversation Mm -hmm. and that it is a trigger and a buzzword for other people. I think because I've done so much work around the different characteristics, I'm very comfortable talking about it because it's a norm of how we operate in society. You know, it's something that's ingrained in pretty much everybody. It's not something that requires you to be white or have been raised around white people. It has ultimately, you know, in today's age, nothing to do with being a white person, right? It was cultivated based on like Western society of how we operate, what's expected of us as human beings. You know, we're expected to be professionals. We're expected to be perfect. Owning power is really something that, you know, in America, we appreciate things that are in written word, we, you know, value. And so these are just characteristics that most people, if they took a moment to see it, would understand that actually, yeah, you know, I can relate to one or more of these characteristics. As a Black woman, I, on a daily basis, perpetuate the white supremacy culture. And, you know, it's what I do now that I am aware of that is what makes a difference, right? It's not that I perpetuate it and I'm like, ooh, you know, I'm an awful person, but I perpetuate it. And in what ways am I doing that? And how can I be aware of it, right? I want to be perfect. I want to make sure that how I present is a certain way. You know, I work in a large system and power control, written documents is what's most valued. And so I have to acknowledge that the white supremacy culture is through and out what I do. And because I'm able to acknowledge that, I can push back as much as possible so it doesn't trickle out into how the clients experience the work when they're working with me. I think that it's an opportunity for people to think about how they interface, right? Even if it's, you know, as people are moving through life, you know, we often get defensive, right? We're like, oh, you know, that's not me. I didn't do that, right? There's probably a listener right now that's like, I'm not a white, you know, like, okay. Defensiveness is a characteristic of white supremacy culture. And most people through some type of conversation get defensive. And so thinking about how does that defensiveness impact the staff that you're working with or the clients that you're interfacing with It's just an opportunity to say, okay, let me be a little bit more mindful of my own defensiveness 
and my own inability to acknowledge something in this moment. Yeah, I, I would think defensiveness would apply to pretty much any culture or any bias, right? If it's an area of unexploration or an area where somebody's saying, you know, you're you're being hurtful, I think it's a normal human response to get defensive. And maybe what you're saying is like that's maybe like a flag or a clue that you should explore this more, or that there's something there. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So say a therapist or maybe a clinical supervisor is meeting with a staffer or meeting with a client and they get feedback from that person and the Mm -hmm. feedback doesn't feel good. And they're like, what? I didn't Mm -hmm. do that. That's not me. You know, that's not what I meant by that. That's a level of defensiveness. And in that moment, that behavioral clinician or that clinical supervisor is being defensive rather than taking a step back and saying, okay, this is feedback that I can receive in this moment. It doesn't have to be true for me in this moment. But for the person that's providing me this feedback, that's how it landed for them. That's how they're experiencing it. And in this moment, I don't need to be defensive. I just need to receive and acknowledge and then see how we can work through it. And that's Mm -hmm. the way that defensiveness can show up. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you were mentioning earlier some ways that you see white supremacy embedded in the system in which you work. Are there other points that you wanted to touch on with that? You mentioned the reliance on written word and power and that type of thing. How else do you see this showing up with institutional families? Yeah. So if you think about a family that is receiving some level of clinical support, there are contact notes, there's clinical notes that are written up. And oftentimes those are written from the perspective of the clinician in that moment, right? The client's not helping write the notes. The client gave the information and the clinician's writing the notes. And then those notes can either be passed along to the next provider or they just live there and an insurance panel may request them at some point or a court may request them at some point. And that is a worshiping of the written word where a client may not have the contribution to it, to the written word, but whatever the clinician wrote is worshiped. And so that's an important factor of being mindful of what are we documenting about our clients? Are we being accurate? Are we documenting from our perspective? Are we documenting from a level of bias where we're judging our clients? Or are we being unbiased and just clear and direct around what the client said and the clinical assessment based on the client's statements and our observations? And so that's another point where if what we're documenting, we haven't been aware of the contribution of our own biases to that, we can do harm to the client. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. So how would you imagine a system, like in a perfect world, mm-hmm. um, how would you imagine a system that was less focused in white supremacy and more open or welcoming or like built from the perspective of minorities or black and brown individuals? What would that look like? Yeah, it would stem from the spirit of motivation interviewing where we are collaborative, right? We are not doing something on one ended, right? Which it would be power hoarding, which is another characteristic. We wouldn't be power hoarding the clinical case management and the client's lives. We would be more collaborative in holding partnership with those communities, whether it be on a meso level where we're doing it with the whole family or that community setting, or we're doing it one-on-one with a client, but we are looking at a way to collaborate with them in their life because ultimately we're just there for a short period of time we're doing work with them in an interim and they have to keep living. So we want to make sure that we are collaborating with them in that decision-making process. And I see that being a way that we can do that. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. 
Are you preparing for a licensure exam in psychology, social work, marriage and family therapy, counseling, or behavioral analysis? AATBS is here to help. We have been supporting behavioral mental health students to prepare for their licensure exams for more than 45 years, working with over 1 million students to succeed on test day and move on to the next step in their career. With products ranging from comprehensive courses to quiz banks and delivered live online, self-study online, and in print, AATBS has test prep solutions that meet every student's needs and learning styles. Visit us today at aatbs.com. That's aatbs.com and use promo code BHT15 to save 15% off your next purchase. Okay. How do you bring the mental health element into this? Because I totally see what you're saying, but I'm also part of me is wondering like, in this field, people are coming to us because they're not at their best. Sometimes they're not thinking clearly. They really do need some help. Because there really is a power differential in a way because they're coming for help, coming for direction, coming for resources. They're coming to someone who's trained and equipped, you know, and they're in a moment of need. So how do you bring that level into it and honor that without it turning into power hoarding? Absolutely. I mean, and, and anyone that's coming in that's needing support from a system is going to feel a lower level of hierarchy, right? They're not right. going to feel like they have a stake in this and they're at mercy of that system, at mercy of that clinician. Right. And so I would say naming the differences, right? Like for me, when I'm working with a client, I name the system, right? You know, I will acknowledge that I work for a system and here's what's expected of me. Here's how I can help them. I'm very clear on what needs to happen. And I'm very communicative with my clients. And that's how I share power in that moment because I'm not sitting with my client in a position of, I know more than them as far as what's happening in this moment, but I'm sharing with them as much as I can and helping like forecast what it could look like moving forward. And I'm thinking about, you know, sharing that in a mental health setting with our clients that are coming to us in distress, really sitting there thinking about what are some areas that they're needing help, asking them, have they attempted to change any of this before and really getting a biopsychosocial of their lived experience. Because if we just sit there and think, oh, you're coming to me because you're going through a divorce, you know, someone's using substances, there's a distress in the family, and we just sit with that in itself, then we're not looking at a client being multidimensional. We're just going to help them in that moment. But really collaborating with them to understand, you know, what's going on? How can I help you? And how could I be of best help to you would be more collaborative. And then that's sharing the power because the client's able to talk more and be more descriptive in what they're needing rather than them coming to us and us just prescribing what needs to happen next. So yeah. it's really a partnership with the client. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really speaking about like holistic training. And like you mentioned earlier, a lot is on the provider to be aware of the the cultural factors, the racial factors, the gender factor, like all the factors that are involved in helping this person instead of not thinking too deeply about it and not thinking about how their biases could inform the treatment. So it sounds like it's really this like holistic systemic type of conceptualization. And then like you said, bringing the client along and getting feedback from them and making sure they feel comfortable. So it sounds in a way like awareness is really what you're advocating for on behalf of the provider, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I work with clients, especially when I'm still trying to build rapport with them, I will ask them for permission. Like, 
I want to share something with you. I want to share an idea of, you know, an activity you can do to address this need, you know, and I asked them for permission. Is it okay with you that I share this idea with you right now? Instead Mm. of just outright like, oh, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. This is my best idea for you. Instead, you know, asking, is there something you've ever done to address it? Are there people in your social network that have suggested things? And going through that. And then at that point, let me, if it's okay with you, share something that I think could help. And in Mm -hmm. fact, you know, I was working with a client who is suffering from his OCD. And instead of me jumping towards, let me give you an idea that I think is great. I first asked, you know, what have they done already? And then I asked them, has there been anyone that suggested something? They said, oh yeah, my mom suggested me using a Velcro patch. And I was like, oh, that's great. Like, have you tried it before? And then I was like, before I provide my suggestions, this person was able to share those things and share in the power of next steps, right? When you think about addressing that goal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really like offering human dignity, it sounds like in that moment. And yeah, it reminds me of a lot of theories. A lot of people operate out of like Virgerian or solution focus where you really are collaborative with the client. Yeah. exactly. But I assume like the higher level of care clients need, we have to be a bit more prescriptive. We have to be a bit more like, okay, you're in crisis. Like I need to step in and like contain the situation or get you stable. But then I'm assuming that you're saying underneath that, once they're stable, then you resume this like collaborative, respectful dialogue. Absolutely. Safety and risk are always top priority as a social worker, as you know, as a clinical social worker, being able to address a client's safety, right? Are they okay right now? And then risk, What's the risk factor that can contribute to their safety level in the next week until I see them again? Addressing those are ultimate. Once we can stabilize that client, what type of support can we provide them that's going to be long lasting and isn't going to be short term? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, motivational interviewing is a way to engage in all of this. So tell us more about that, because I haven't heard that before, applying motivational interviewing to biases specifically. So I'm curious your perspective on that. Yeah. When I think about collaboration, That is one of the spirits of MI, as well as autonomy, right? You know, making sure that the client is their own individual person and that we're not trying to suppress that because the system's going to do it on their own. We don't need to add to that. And when I think about the spirit of MI and the different ways that we can interface with clients, it is an opportunity to support the clients where they're at and find a way to curate change that will be longstanding. You know, when I train on MI, because I offer MI training, a video that I show is a classic video of Bob Newhart in Comedy Central, where he has a client that comes in and sits down and she wants to talk to him. And he's only offering five minutes, right? And he is charging her for every minute. And she wants to talk about all these things. And she starts to you know, adding these layers of, I want to discuss a relationship. I want to discuss eating. I want to discuss washing hands. I want to discuss all the traumas and all the things that she's experienced. And he just keeps saying, nope, nope, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. He just says, stop it, stop it, stop it. And so that is, you know, a way of providing therapeutic support, which goes against the MI training of really being collaborative, really allowing the client to discuss their culture, to discuss their experiences, to discuss their perspective or what has contributed to the ultimate problem or issue that has led them to our office or has led them to our services. And if we don't allow the client to discuss those things or to process those things in a safe space with us, 
then they will continue to walk through life with those experiences or those traumas and not be able to really move past them. Yeah. So my understanding, maybe you can clarify, because it's been a minute since I've thought about motivational interviewing, but my understanding is you use it sort of play, I guess like devil's advocate would be a way of saying it, where you're trying to get someone to do the opposite of what they're doing by helping them gain insight. Like a lot of the research for it was built on drug addiction or smoking, things like that. So help us understand how you would use it in relation to white supremacy or racism or things of that nature. Absolutely. And motivation interviewing was curated to address those of substance using concerns. But what I've realized is that I can use it in different settings. And I do that. And I've contributed to a published book on using it within child welfare within the system. And when I think about its connection to white supremacy culture, a client that I had a few years ago, I was working with him. He is a single black father in Oakland, California. And I realized shortly after receiving this case that he was illiterate and he could not read. And so one of the ways that I collaborated with him, knowing that we worship the written word and that his court reports would be really important for him to understand, I collaborated with him in our discussions. And I really took the time to be an active listener and hear what he was saying. And then after we were done, I wrote the court report and then went to his home and read it to him front to back, top to bottom. It was a little over 20 pages. And after each page, I would stop and ask him, do you have any questions? And he said, no. And then we got, once I was done with the whole report, I, you know, asked him, do you have any questions? Was there anything in them that you didn't agree with or that didn't make sense? And he said, nope, everything, you know, made sense. It was exactly how it happened, exactly what was said. And honestly, I was shocked because I was ready for him to like disagree or be upset. But to know that I was able to work with a client that couldn't read what was there, but knowing that the worshiping of the written word, a court report, was the ultimate key to the next step. And I was able to collaborate with him using the spirit of MI and my MI techniques to engage this client to get this accurate information and document it in a way that he could agree to it was, for me, an ultimate pathway that I'm taking as a social worker and a clinical professional is accurate and can do good work in this field. Um, And I was able to have a successful outcome for that client in his favor because I was able to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and, you know, suppress or at least be mindful of my biases and acknowledge those of the system and work with the client, respect his autonomy, collaborate with him, evoke different understandings via my questioning and make sure that the white supremacy culture was in a way working in our benefit because the written word was accurate to this client's understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Like how you said, you're using the culture in that way. Cause it, it, but that's what I was thinking. It's like, well, motivational interviewing was made by a white person. Absolutely. So if we're talking about systemic racism, you, mm-hmm. you know, that's embedded in it. So it's like, but you're still using it. So it's like, how can you use it in a beneficial way? So it sounds, okay. correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like you're using, like you said, the techniques of motivational interviewing, not so much the way it was like, quote unquote, designed to change people's behavior or to switch their perspective, but you're just talking about open-ended questions and like mindful questions and really helping the client find their voice. And so it sounds like you're using pieces of motivational interviewing to do that. And you found it to be effective. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Got of it. course, yeah. you know, Roller and, you know, the, the, the people that created motivational interviewing are, you know, older white men. 
understood. And our whole and field it, is mostly right. white men. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I actually had that question from a grad student earlier this year, like, white supremacy culture was, you know, developed by white people. Yes. Also, the institution that you're getting your degree from was also developed by white people. And the DMV and mortgage and like everything in society, while there were a lot of people of color that founded things and developed things and curated things, there's a general understanding that what we are experiencing was created by white people. And so it's not about ignoring that, but understanding it, embracing it, and seeing how we can utilize it to the benefit of the clients and ourselves, right? And so absolutely, I, I don't do MI, I embody it. It's just like how I communicate and how I engage with people. I don't even think about it. It's just a way of being for me and completely embracing the white supremacy culture and understanding it and finding ways to empower through it and not be suppressed by it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, we definitely love hearing stories. You've already mentioned a couple client experiences here and there. Do you have other stories that you'd want to share that sort of embody this change and this this process that you're talking about? Yeah, I think that change will really occur when we embrace and bring in these other cultures and different dynamics. When you think about power hoarding or power dynamics, if we continue to only have a subgroup of people at those high-level positions, then they will bring their perspectives and their ideologies to the room. And eventually it'll trickle down and, you know, the community people will be able to decipher. But I have a colleague who was the CEO of a a large nonprofit in Los Angeles. She was actually named one of the top CEOs for nonprofits in LA. And what she did before leaving this organization was curate positions on the board for community people, right? So she works in the homeless population And she made sure that the board in their bylaws, in their budget, in their formation had seats on the board for people that are of older age, that have experienced homelessness, that are in a transition period. And that is true equity, inclusion, bringing people forward. And then she moved on to a a different position where she is still working with an older age population for homelessness and utilizes her own story of moving from one home to an Airbnb, to another home, having three different residences in less than a year and experiencing what is defined as unstable housing, right? For people of lower socioeconomic status, they would be determined as not being stable housing, not being qualified for certain services. And she uses her own platform to say, look, what you're defining for these people, I experienced. So let's reframe how we look at it. And that is a socioeconomic bias that we hold, right? If you're at this statue and you have this privilege, then what you experience, we're going to look past it. But if you are on a lower socioeconomic status and you're in poverty, you're underserviced, your voice is not empowered, we can look past you. We don't need you to make decisions. Then we're going to continue to create policies and rules and ways of expectations that would be harmful towards you. And so I really just appreciate that idea of bringing people onto the board and then finding ways that we as professionals experience things and using that story to bring in perspective, right? That experience and that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the the summary, I guess, of this conversation is like using our own experiences, our own perspectives for good rather than just not reflecting on them because sometimes the absence of that reflection can do serious harm. 
Yeah, yeah. Do you have any final words of encouragement or maybe a gentle challenge for our listeners in regards to any of the topics we've talked about today? Yeah, I would just say, you know, Google biases. There's a a pinwheel of biases and it shows, you know, hundreds of different types of biases and just read through them. Don't do it with defensiveness. Do it with openness of, you know what, there's one of these that applies to me. Which one is it? And do it as like an experiment that's exciting. It's so exciting to think about like confirmation bias. When you think about confirmation bias, you know, people that watch one type of news channel, watch that one. They're probably not going to watch the other one, right? People that listen to like the radio are listening to radio channels that are going to confirm their bias, right? When you think about Googling something, you're going to Google something that's going to confirm your bias, right? That's confirmation bias. And so my challenge to the listeners is, is to Google biases, go to the image section and look at the different types of biases and find the one that matches with you today and see it as an opportunity to broaden your understanding of what biasy means and an opportunity to be more mindful in the work that we're doing with system mm-hmm. involved and clinically needed clients. Yeah. And maybe it's like searching for different perspectives in whatever category that is. Yeah, I like how you brought up media essentially, because we know for sure now that, that all the algorithms on social media and even Google, they're tailored to what you like, which originally sounded fun and interesting, but now it's like a serious problem because a lot of people are not getting the full picture of what's really going on, whether that's something super lighthearted or something very serious and politically important, right? So yeah, I think that idea of like listening to multiple perspectives is really wise in our world in general right now, but definitely when it comes to biases, I think that's one of the easiest ways to sort of shake up your own assumptions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. Okay. Well, where can we learn more about either equity and bias in general or also your right community services? Tell us more. Yeah. So when I share the white supremacy culture characteristics, I would invite people to Google Tima Okna. She wrote an article on white supremacy culture. And so the link will be shared with that. To learn more about Maria and me and my services, you can Google Right Community Services. RightCommunityServices.com is my website. On there, you'll find about Maria. And then there's a hyperlink to go to my consulting website, which has more information. And then on my Right Community Services website, you will see merch that I have for social workers. And the title is Social Worker Period, because period, you know, if you're a social worker, you're a social worker, period. Doesn't matter if you're a bachelor, MSW, clinical doctor, you know, as social workers, it's an opportunity to empower and really bring together this community in the work that we're doing. So Social Worker Period, it's a hat hat. with a buckle back. So it's very user-friendly. That's good for those of us with a lot of hair. Yes, exactly. Pins, stickers, and then also there'll be writing pins and, and, and name badge holders and in cups as well. So you can find all of that on rightcommunityservices.com. Okay. Can you make a psychologist hat for me? Yes. <laughs> psychologist, period. Yeah. You could have like a branch out merch store for all of the different disciplines. But no, I love that idea because yeah, it's like then that's the thing about social work is it's very community and group focused anyway, right? And so it's yes. nice that I like your message where it's like, whatever your degree, we're all in it together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Well, hopefully you can sell a lot of those cute hats Thank and pins. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. We're really glad that you took the time to be here today. I feel like this is an interesting conversation. And yeah, just thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Thank you. And this is such a great opportunity. Thank you for having me. And 
you know, I appreciate the Behavioral Health Today community and all of the listeners or viewers. Yes, yes. And I want to remind our listeners that this episode, all of its resources and other shows can also be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash BHT. You can visit triadhq.com slash BHT today and explore our archive. And finally, we do want to thank you, our listeners, for joining in on this conversation. We always appreciate you being here with us. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.